stop thinking about change as what I want to have happen and start asking why it hasn't happened already. Right? You talk to people who have been unable to change things and they'll say, oh, it didn't work, it didn't happen, and you ask them why and they say things like, people didn't like it. People didn't like it isn't the truth, right? Underneath that truth is a bigger or broader reason. Why don't people like it? What are people scared of? What are they attached to? What are they unwilling to let go of? Start by asking, why hasn't that change happened already? It'll help you identify the barriers and it'll help you change anything. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, some might say that one of the ultimate forms of influence is the ability to change the mind of somebody else which shouldn't actually be that hard, right? You replace fact A with updated fact B, and then you're done. System overwrite, opinion change, go home, your job here is finished. Now, if you're smiling right now, then I'm guessing that you're with me in that never once in my entire career of trying to create compelling messaging, trying to get ideas adopted and actioned at scale, have I ever had that experience. You know, generally speaking, and by that I mean pretty much always, if we feel we're being pushed to do something, to adopt something, we push back. If something new or novel is suggested, our brains automatically pick out every reason is a terrible idea before we even consciously consider the idea. And even when we're confronted with proven evidence that a change is needed, research shows that human nature in its infinite wisdom then makes us more determined to double down on our current version of events. So more facts actually equals less chance of changing somebody's mind. So when opposition seems to be literally hardwired into our brains and without access to Yoda or Jedi mind tricks, then the question becomes, how do you change somebody's mind? Now, my guest today, he has spent a career unpacking the hidden forces behind influence Professor Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the internationally best-selling author of Contagious, Invisible Influence, and now The Catalyst. Now, at the heart of Contagious, which, you know, without overestimating, was genuinely one of the most influential books of my career, is why certain products, ideas, services, and behaviors catch on, while others just seem to stay on the sidelines. Now, the success of Contagious and resulting consulting requests from some of the world's top tier firms, including Google, Apple, Nike, then led Professor Berger to another insight, that there are two phases to impact. The first is getting someone's attention, getting them to take and run with an idea. The second is converting that attention into long-term action, literally changing their minds. Now, that realization and a lot more research later led to his latest book, the Catalyst, How to Change Anybody's Mind. Now that, that book is a counterintuitive approach to initiating change, which is why I loved it. It isn't about pushing harder or exerting more energy or more force, but instead it's about being a catalyst, lowering the barriers that prevent the change from happening in the first place. Now in this episode, we talk about what those barriers are, 
and how pushing against them, as instinctive as it feels, rarely works. We also discuss the technique of providing a menu and why giving somebody options allows them to buy in while also feeling like they retain control. Now that sounds like a simple tool, but apply it and I promise you that one is a game changer. We also look at the impact of movements, the role of protests, and what comes next when it comes to harnessing attention into action. And finally, and this is definitely one for the world we currently find ourselves facing, how to lift the handbrake of uncertainty. Allowing people to experience what you're offering by temporarily removing the risk involved in changing their mind. Now, at this point, I would usually provide a menu of ways to enjoy the podcast, along with some suggestions of what to reflect on while you're listening. But in the spirit of this particular topic, I'm going to leave that up to your own free will. But whatever you are and whatever you're doing, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with the incredible Professor Jonah Berger. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Jonah Berger. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a total pleasure. I've been really excited to ask you. I, I have one question that I usually kick this podcast off with, and I've been very excited to ask it to you because you've dedicated your entire career to figuring out you know, why certain ideas catch on, why certain ideas appear, appear more interesting or viral than others. So I wanted to ask you, what's, what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? You know, I think one of the most influential ideas I've heard recently um, is that uh, language uh, has a lot of information in it that we don't always realize. Uh, you and I are speaking right now. Uh, we are creating lots of language. If we transcribe this interview, uh, we can use tools to analyze it to learn a lot of things uh, from from that language and that text. Uh, you can learn things about people, their personalities, their dispositions, their likes, their dislikes. You can learn things about cultural items. Uh, we're doing some research at the moment on how we can predict whether songs succeed based on their lyrics or movies succeed based on their scripts. Um, and you can understand how influence works by looking at language. We're doing some research on customer service, for example, and looking how the words that customer service agents use uh, as well as the vocal cues uh, and the things like pitch and tone and pauses that happen between those words uh, shape behavior. And so I think it's really an untapped source uh, of data and insight really to pull wisdom uh, from language or, or wisdom from words. And so that's the words themselves, not necessarily how those words are delivered, the energy, the, the pauses in between, just simply the words on a page. Both. Both, right? So both of those things provide information, both the words themselves. Um, you know, for example, some people talk, use a lot of words like I, some people use a lot of words like we. Um, you know, when I'm talking about my own research, sometimes I say we did this, even if it's only one person that, that did it, only, only, only just me. Often we can learn a lot about people, uh, their attitudes, their preferences, their likes, their dislikes, and why things succeed and fail from the, the words or the language that makes those things up. That's that is fascinating. That's I mean, if you think about it, language is language is our only way of being able to connect, interact, um, bring people into a tribe, um, work out problems. So it makes perfect sense that it contains like layers and layers and layers of information. Indeed. Well, I'm I'm a huge I was a huge fan of, of Contagious, and I'm now a massive fan of of Catalyst. It's just it answered so many questions for me that I had. Um, 
But I want to talk about how it came about. And I know that I listened to an interview and you said it came about because the tools that you would usually use with clients for some reason at that stage weren't working, which I know is, you know, that's massively frustrating, right? When something, you're trying something and you're like, something different is at play here and I just can't put my finger on it. What specifically wasn't working for you that that led to Catalyst? Yeah, so just even taking a, a step back. So um, I'm trained as an academic. So I did a PhD in marketing. Um, I write lots of academic research papers about academic research. I teach at the Wharton School um, and, and love research and, and love teaching. Um, but a few years ago, my life changed uh, a little bit. Um, I wrote this book, Contagious, as you mentioned. Um, and before that, I might have done a consulting project here and there or you know maybe a speaking engagement once in a while. Um, but really, that book changed uh, my life. Um, suddenly, I was getting caught calls from all sorts of companies and organizations, from big Fortune 500s like the Googles and Nikes and Apples of the world to small startups, um, and was speaking in front of all sorts of different groups uh, about the ideas uh, of Contagious. Um, and what I loved about that uh, experience is I learned a lot about business, um, big businesses, small businesses, nonprofits and for-profits, B2B companies and B2C companies. Um, and what I noticed is that many of them had something in common, which is they all had something that they wanted to change. Uh, leaders wanted to transform organizations. Employees wanted to change their boss's mind. Uh, marketing folks wanted to change uh, consumer behavior, and sales wanted to change client opinions. Uh, you know, folks in research and development wanted to get people to listen to them. Uh, parents wanted to change their children's minds. Uh, startups wanted to change industries. Nonprofits wanted to change the world. Uh, but change is really hard. Uh, companies were pushing uh, and providing more reasons and more information, and um, you know, people were providing more PowerPoint decks and giving more presentations, and it just wasn't going. Traditional advertising wasn't working. Traditional push messaging wasn't working. And so I started wondering, you know, could there be a better way? I started looking at the literature. I started interviewing uh, folks from, you know, uh, transformational uh, leaders to great salespeople. And I started to notice that there's actually a different approach that was was much more effective. And, and that's the approach that became this book. And what, when I was reading through your work and, and looking at the approach that you took with this book, there was, there's a massive intersection there between the, the way you approach it and also the way that I love and have chosen to approach this podcast, which is that the roots of influence are often found in the strangest of places. They're found, you know, on the fringes, they're found with um, hostage negotiators, they're found with, you know, drugs counselors, they're found with graffiti artists trying to start a revolution with no telecommunications network, you know, in the places where the rubber hits the road. And, you know, they're high stakes and you're stood in the fire as to whether it works or whether it doesn't. What, why was taking that about? Firstly, who did you interview? Because there were some amazing people. And, and why was that a, approach important to you? As noted, I'm, I'm an academic at heart. This book has lots of, uh, you know, academic research in the back, lots of, you know, looking at the literature and saying, what does literature say about X, Y, and Z? But but in addition, I always love interviewing real people to see how they apply these ideas. Um, and in addition to the traditional sort of, let's look at business leaders, let's look at sales leaders, let's look at folks along those lines. You know, I thought if I was going to go with a title like this, how to change anyone's mind, my editor said, look, you know, we've really got to pick out some cases that are really unusual. 
cases not just where the boss is talking to an employee, but a case where you know someone's trying to get someone who supports the Ku Klux Klan to renounce the Ku Klux Klan. Someone who's a Democrat becomes a Republican. Someone who's a, a drug addict gets rid of drugs. And so I interviewed a lot of people that were outside my normal sort of uh, zone uh, of experience. But what was so neat about those interviews is you saw the same principles coming up again and again. So you know we may get into reactants in a couple of minutes, and you know reactants is quite useful. Uh, you know a variety of consultants and salespeople told me about strategies they use to overcome reactants. But parenting experts also talked about how they used very similar strategies to get their kids to eat their vegetables. And so seeing the same ideas or basic psychological principles, even if they weren't called the same by those individuals from those different areas, was really insightful and I think allowed me to really see the breadth of ways that we can apply these ideas. Talk to me very quickly before we get before we dive into some of these some of these tools, talk to me about the rabbi. It's just it's such a beautiful story. Yeah, so I think I think the the quick version of that story um, is uh, there's a rabbi. He moves to Middle America. Um, uh, he's uh, you know one of the not only Jewish families in town, but one of the small number of Jewish families in town. He gets a piece of hate mail from the KKK, sort of you know sending him all these ridiculous, horrible things that they're saying they're going to do to him. Um, he starts getting these phone calls from someone uh, from uh, from them of you know saying negative things uh, and the like, um, and he gets scared. Um, and in, in what most people would do in that situation is they'd call the police or they'd you know fight back um, in, in some way. But what he realizes, I think what he realizes is interesting at the core of this, he realizes, wait, if someone's uh, stuck on the KKK, there must be a really interesting reason. Right? There must be something deeply troubling that's happened to them that made them feel like this is the only way out. And so what he does is rather than fighting hate with hate or rather than sending this person um, and you know, forwarding the police the information and letting the police have it, he starts calling up this guy and leaving what he calls love notes. Just messages saying, "Hey, just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. You know, uh, you know, it must be tough out there. You know, everyone doesn't like the Ku Klux Klan. You know, let me know if you ever want to talk." He basically opens up a channel, which the the Grand Dragon, this leader of the Ku Klux Klan, eventually takes up on. Um, eventually, uh, renounces the Ku Klux Klan, moves into the guy's house, becomes a devout uh, 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 follower of Judaism, uh, learns Hebrew, all these amazing, crazy things. In part because the guy, rather than fighting hate with hate, really was open um, and wanted to share experiences with him. And so I think what this points out, just stepping back for a minute from this, this story, is you know when we try to change minds, we tend to take a particular approach. And that approach is pushing. We tend to think more facts, more reason, more information. If I just send one more PowerPoint deck, people will come around. And it's clear why we think that will work. Right? So if, if we take a, a page from the physical world, right? so take a, a chair, for example, that's sitting in the middle of a room, if we're trying to move that chair, pushing that chair is a great way to get it to go. We push that chair, that chair goes in the direction we want it to go. But there's a challenge with applying that, that intuition or that idea to the social world, which is when you push people, whether that person is a member of the Ku Klux Klan or whether that person is your boss or whether that person is your spouse, when we push people, they don't just go, they tend to push back. Right? And so pushing isn't going to work. People tend to dig in their heels and they tend to push back. And so the alternate approach this book talks about comes from chemistry rather than physics. Right? If you look to chemistry, change in chemistry is really hard. Right? So uh, it takes eons, millions of years for carbon to turn into diamonds or uh, plant matter to turn into uh, oil. And so chemists use a special set of substances to speed the process. They often use temperature. They often use pressure. Um, but these special set of substances do it even faster uh, and even 
even better. And what's most interesting, though, is they don't increase the temperature. They don't increase the pressure. They don't increase the amount of energy required to get change to occur. Instead, what they do is they identify the barriers to change, and they mitigate those barriers. They figure out what the obstacles are, and they allow the same amount of change to happen with less energy, not more. And these things are called catalysts. And we can apply these same ideas in the social world as well. Rather than pushing, rather than providing more reasons and more information, rather than telling people why, we, why they should do what we want them to do, instead taking a step back and going, just like that rabbi did, why hasn't someone changed already? Not, and most of us will never deal with someone in the Ku Klux Klan and trying to change their mind, but you know, why hasn't that client changed their mind already? Why hasn't my employees changed their behavior already? What are the things that are stopping them? Not how can I get them to do what I want them to do, but why haven't they changed already? What's preventing them? And how by identifying those barriers or those obstacles and mitigating them, can we get them to change? And so in the book, I talk about five main obstacles that come up again and again. I talk about reactance, uh, endowment. The third one is uh, um, uh, distance. The fourth is uncertainty. And the fifth is corroborating evidence. Uh, put those five together in an acronym. They spell the word reduce, which is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They don't provide more reasons or more temperature, or more pressure. They figure out what the barriers are to change and they reduce them. I really, lo- I really love the, the fact that you said intuition there, because I think that that sums that up. You know, our intuition is that A, push harder or temperature and pressure, right? We, we, we get more intense. We raise our voice. We apply more pressure. We raise the temperature of the conversation to try and get someone to change their mind. But the opposite of actually just making it easier, calmer for someone to, to change their mind on something. I want to let's let's actually know before we do that. You highlighted five barriers to change there. Are there any basic questions just to, to find out initially which one might be at play with the person whose mind we're trying to change? Yeah, I mean, I think that is really the question that's the core of this book. So, you know, I, I interviewed uh, hundreds of different people in, in a separate sort of study we did. And I said, hey, pick something you want to change um, and, uh, pick an, and tell us about an approach you used. And over 98% of the time, people use some version of pushing. There's a sense, a sense of barrier blindness, right? We're so focused on what the outcome we want to achieve is that we very rarely think about why someone hasn't done that thing already. But if you think about it, you know, imagine you walk into the doctor's office and you say, hey, doctor, I'm not feeling so well. And they said, okay, here's a cast. I'll put it on your foot. I'll see you later, right? You'd go, well, wh- what are you doing? You haven't asked me why I'm not feeling well. You haven't taken my temperature. You haven't done all the things to figure out what the problem is. You haven't run a diagnostic in some sense to figure out what the problem is before you prescribe a solution. And that's obvious in the case of a medical professional. But when we apply that to our own change, uh, whether it's a change initiative, whether we're trying to change a client's mind, whoever it might be, we do that all the time. We don't ask people what they need. We don't try to figure out what the problem is. We just prescribe our solution right away. And so really what we have to do is just like a doctor steps back and asks some questions, start by figuring what are those barriers to change. A couple of years ago, I was working with them. Uh, a B2B client that had a, a back-end sort of software solution uh, that helped uh, people that run heavy machines find parts. Um, and they were saying, hey, you know, people aren't adopting this thing as fast as we want. Uh, we're thinking about dropping the price or doing more advertising. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let's stop and let's figure out what the reasons are that people might not use this service. So one is clearly awareness, right? They don't realize it exists. Another is they realize it exists, but they don't think it will work. Another is they think it will work, but they don't think they have a problem. Another is it's too expensive. Another is it's not too expensive, but they don't know how to integrate with their existing software. And so we listed all the various barriers that there could be. And then we 
started to talk to clients to figure out which ones of those were the real barriers. We started grouping clients based on which ones that were prospective clients that had similar issues. And only then, once we knew what the issues were, once we knew what the problems were, only then did we prescribe to, pre to prescribe a solution. Only then, as the doctor would do, did we prescribe some medicine. And I think the same thing is really important uh, as, as a change agent as we think about using these, these five uh, aspects of the DEUCE framework, right? Um, I can't tell you ahead of time which one is going to be the right one for you. It's often multiple. Uh, in many cases, you know, you see endowment at work and uh, uncertainty at work. In many cases, you see reactants at work. You often see all of them. In some cases, some are more important than others. But the first thing you need to do is understand what the barriers are and start to identify them. Say, in this situation, which of these seems to be coming up? And based on that, how can I figure out how to mitigate them? So ask. Just go. I think that's it, right? Ask, don't tell is a great place to start. Well, let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's drill down into reactants, first of all. And this one just got me like nodding my head for about an hour as I was, as I was reading through the research. And the notion is that when pushed, people push back. And that's the human phenomenon that as soon as someone suggests going to the movies, we start thinking about all the reasons that that's just not a good idea. And that is my, <laughs> that is my family to a T, to a T. So firstly, what is that? What is that natural reaction to immediately come up with all the reasons why that's either not a good idea or that will never work? Yeah, so we love to feel uh, like we have freedom and control over our lives. Why did I buy this product? Why did I use this service? Why did I, why do I eat this breakfast cereal? Why do I do this thing at the office? We want to feel like we're in control. Who made the choice? I made. Uh, I made the choice. I'm in the driver's seat of my life. And that makes a lot of sense. But the challenge is that when we try to change someone else's mind, we're impinging on their ability to feel like their choices are made within themselves. We're impinging on their ability to feel like they're in the driver's seat, right? When we say buy this product, use this service, when we say we're going to change company culture, when we say let's do things differently, now people aren't coming up with themselves. We're coming up with it for them, right? So if uh, let's say I'm selling a, a car, for example, um, and someone sees an ad for the car, and then later on they go, maybe I'll think about buying that car. Now they're going, well, hold on. Am I thinking about buying that car because I like that car? Or am I thinking about buying that car because the ad told me to buy that car? And so as soon as they start thinking it's coming from outside of them, they're less interested in doing it. Essentially, people have almost an ingrained anti-persuasion radar, almost like sort of a spidey sense or defense system that any time they feel that someone else is trying to persuade them, those defenses go up. And they engage in a variety of countermeasures to avoid being persuaded. So everything from avoiding or ignoring. So, uh, you know, hey, you get a call from a salesperson, you ignore it uh, or you avoid it. You delete that email that comes in that's a pitch that you don't want to listen to. Um, uh, right. We go into the other room when we hear an ad uh, come on the TV. Uh, but even worse than that is counterarguing. Because we might be in a meeting, for example, and people seem like they're listening to us, but really they're not just listening to us. Rather than just listening to us, they're sitting there thinking about all the reasons why what we're suggesting is wrong. Almost like a member of like a high school debate team, for example, that's shooting down um, you know, everything that someone's saying. They're going, well, this won't work and it'll be too expensive and this is why we can't do it. And so rather than selling people an idea, we need to get them to buy in. We need to make them feel like it's their idea, that they have control over that idea, that they have choice as part of that process. And so in the book, I talk, I think, about three or four different solutions to do this. But the idea is rather than trying to persuade people, we need to get them to persuade themselves. We need to give them back that sense of freedom and give them back that sense of autonomy. And we don't, we don't have the, the space at the moment to go into all of them. But the one that I did want to jump into was providing a menu because I think that that's just 
essentially a very simple, very easy to implement solution here, which could lead to huge results. So you just walk through what is providing a menu? Yeah. So, so let's go back to that meeting where you're giving a presentation and it might be you're presenting to a client, you might be presenting to the organization um, and everyone's sitting there nodding their heads. But what they're really doing is they're thinking about why what you're suggesting won't work. Right. Sure. You're suggesting that uh, the client take a particular course of action. Sure, you're suggesting the company change the old way of doing things and switch to something new. But that's going to be expensive and difficult and challenging for all these reasons. And so everyone is spending the time thinking about why it won't work. When you give people one option, that's what they do. They think about why it won't work. But what you see great catalysts do, what great change agents do very subtly is rather than giving people one option, they give them multiple. They give them at least two, maybe even three. Because what giving people multiple options does, in some sense providing a menu does, is it shifts the role of the audience. Rather than sitting there and thinking about all the reasons why they don't like what you've suggested, now they have a different job. You've given them a choice. Which one do you like, A or B? And they've got to go, I don't know which one I like. Let me think about it. Which one of these is better for me? And in spending the time thinking about which one is better for them, they're much more likely to choose one of them at the end of the day. And you can see the same thing. I think you alluded to this a little bit already, but in your personal life. So this often happens with spouses or friends. Someone will ask, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Uh, at least before uh, COVID took over, what do you want to do this weekend? Someone would say, oh, let's go to the movies. So oh, I don't want to go to the movies, and these are all the reasons why. Just like the person in the meeting, it's easier for them to list reasons why what you suggested is wrong. But if instead you say, hey, would you like to go to the movies or go out to Chinese food? Now they're sitting there going, huh, which of those do I want to do? And they're not thinking about the dozens, if not hundreds, of other things they could do. Because what you've done is you've given them a menu. You've given them a limited number of choices, not 10, not 15, not 100, which can be overwhelming. But you've given them a limited number of choices, but allow them to choose from within that choice set. You've, in some sense, chosen the choice set. And because you've chosen the choice set, they focus on those, and they're much more likely to pick a thing you're happy with at the end of the day. You know, my dad used to call that the choiceless choice. He would say, you have three options. It's, it's effectively the choiceless choice, as in all of these choices work for me, pick one. Yes, but notice calling it the choiceless choice, uh, it's the choiceless choice for your dad, but calling it that way makes it seem really negative, right? <laughs> like no one wants the choiceless choice. That's my choice. dad's parenting style, just, just pretty much that. But sorry, the same thing works with kids, right? Where, you know, so I have um, uh, an almost three-year-old at the moment. He's a wonderful child, uh, but he loves saying no. Um, uh, you know, uh, do you want to put this on? No. Do you want to read this book? No. Do you want to do this activity? No. And so instead, we try to give him choice. We say, hey, which do you want to eat first? Do you want to eat your broccoli or do you want to eat your chicken? And so in, rather than going, well, I don't like broccoli, sitting there going, oh, which one do I want to eat first? Do I want to put on my shorts first or my shirt? And so we've, in some sense, as you said, constrained the choice, constrained the choice that encouraged him to pick an option we're excited about. But um, he's focused on the fact that he gets to choose. Just going further into reactants, can you talk to me about the Thai Health Authority? Because I, I watched that video and anyone who, who goes on to Professor Berger's website, I think it's, it's on, the, on the website and I wholeheartedly recommend you watch it. It's a very short video, but it was, it was really powerful as to one of the ways to get over reactants. Yeah. Um, and what, what's so interesting about that video, and I think the principle in, in general, is uh, public health officials are used to taking a particular approach. If you want people to do something, uh, like you want them to eat healthier or uh, exercise more, you tell them to do it. Do these things. Um, if you want people not to do something, you tell them not to do it. Don't smoke, don't drink and drive, and, and so on. Even think about uh, today's day and age with COVID, right? Wear a mask. Uh, you know, don't go out from your home. All, all these sorts of different things. Um, 
And the Thai Health Foundation is a, an organization that tries to get people to quit smoking. And what they realize is that telling people uh, to quit smoking wasn't going to work. Because if you tell people, they say, no, no thanks, right? Stop telling me what to do. So instead, they took a, a different, very clever approach. They approached smokers on the street and they asked smokers for a light, to light a cigarette. Um, and this is something that smokers are asked all the time from a variety of people. They always say yes, of course. But this time they said no. And the reason that smokers said no is the person that asked was a nine-year-old boy or girl. That nine-year-old boy or girl came up to a smoker and said, would you give me a light? And the smoker's responses were exactly what you would expect. They said, no way. Of course I'm not going to give you a, a, a light. You're a kid. You shouldn't be smoking, right? Smoking has, uh, you know, it'll ruin your lungs. Don't you want to go outside and play? Smoke is terrible for you. Why are you smoking? What's clear, by the way, is that no one knows more about the health downsides of smoking than smokers. It's not that smokers don't know the information. They readily share those information with, with kids. And so at the end of the interaction, the kid said, okay, thanks, uh, and gave the smoker a slip of paper and, and walked away. And that slip of paper was a very simple note that said, you worry about me, but not yourself. If you want to quit, call this quit line. And indeed, many of the smokers did. Calls to the quit line went up over 40%. Uh, videos uh, of these interactions went viral uh, online because what the Thai Health Foundation did is they didn't tell smokers to quit. What they did is they highlighted what I'll call a gap. They pointed out a gap between the smoker's attitudes and the smoker's actions. Yes, I as a smoker smoke. That's my action. But my attitude is that kids shouldn't smoke. And if I notice those two things together, I notice that there's a disconnect. And I have a psychological process, which is called cognitive dissonance, that encourages me to resolve that disconnect. I'm a smoker, but I told this kid not to smoke. And so I need to do one of two things. I either need to tell that kid that smoking is okay because I'm a smoker and that lines up, or I need to stop smoking myself because I told the kid that it's bad. It's not forcing people to do anything, just like providing a menu, right? It's not forcing people to do one thing or another thing, but it's shaping the journey and encouraging them to see that disconnect. Uh, and the same thing can happen at the office. Right. So, um, uh, you know, if you have there's a project uh, that someone's working on that they're wedded to uh, and they've been working on it for a long time, but it's losing money. It's just not working and they don't want to let it go because it's their project. It's their baby. They don't want to cancel it. If you tell them we should shutter the project, say, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. It's, it's going to work. But if instead you ask them a question, you say, hey, uh, you know, imagine there's a different part of the organization, um, whatever it may be. Would you recommend giving everything you know now? Would you recommend they start? this project. Or, hey, um, you know, think about another organization. Would you recommend they start this project? And the person would probably say, well, no, you know, knowing everything we know now, no, I wouldn't recommend uh, these other or people uh, start, start something like this. And then you can say, well, but then why are we still doing it? Right? Because you've encouraged them to realize, well, hey, if I wouldn't recommend it for someone else, but I'm doing it, something must be wrong. Either I've got to recommend it to someone else or I've got to stop doing it myself. And so you're encouraging them to come to that conclusion on your own, but you're guiding the journey through the right questions. But you have to be careful, right, because the, there's that phenomenon, which I know you also talk about, where you know a warning or highlighting a gap can also become a recommendation, which is just one of the <laughs> – I literally just highlighted, underlined that part because I was – blew my mind as to how a warning becomes a recommendation. But you told this incredible story about laundry pots, which I think just highlighted it perfectly. Yeah. And, and, and again, right, um, it depends on what you're hoping to encourage someone to do. If you tell someone not to do something, um, so um, people are eating laundry pods, the company tells them not to, that makes them more interested in doing it, right? If you tell people not to do something or you tell people to do something, they're less likely to do it. But if instead you don't tell them, you ask them questions and you leave it up to them, 
you're letting them make the choice. And so you're guiding that discussion, right? You're guiding what they're going to do by asking the right questions, but you're not forcing them to do anything. You're not telling them to do that thing. You're encouraging them to come to that conclusion on their own. For anyone that's listening that doesn't know what a laundry pod is, it's the the small little pods that you put into your washing machine that that wash your clothes. And and no, no one recommends that you should start eating them. (laughs) Be really clear on that, really clear. Um, Just a question out of curiosity on this topic. There's a lot of obviously social movements happening at the moment. There's the social unrest. We're seeing Black Lives Matter. We've previously seen climate change movements. When you watch with everything that you know and everything that you have learnt and everything that you've investigated, when you watch those movements, is there anything that over and over and over again you think, oh, goodness, like you're missing a vital piece here. If I was guiding you or counselling you, I would tell you that you're missing a vital piece. Yeah, I mean, I think um, these movements are really powerful things and they've encouraged a lot of people to care about a particular issue. Um, but the key at the end of the day is to drive change, right? So uh, Black Lives Matter is an, important, uh, is an important movement. But at the end of the day, if uh, laws aren't changed uh, about voting, uh, if laws aren't changed about police brutality, if laws aren't changed uh, about various different things, in some sense, the movement's all for naught. And so I think it's really important not only to think about how to catalyze action to get people to want to um, uh, protest and do these things, but what will lead from those things to the change that you want to see, right? Um, uh, at the end of the day, voting is going to be a key piece there, right? And so if uh, it just leads people to turn out and protest, but in two or three months people don't vote, it's not going to matter. Same thing with climate change, right? Um, many people are willing to sign a petition saying, I care about climate change. Fewer people are willing to take the steps to actually decrease the chance that climate change happens. And so what I think is really important is turning those movements into action um, and thinking about how to do that. And, and I talk about some different ways to, to do that in the book, but I think that that's really the key. At, at the end of the day, if it's just, if it's just movements but no action happens, it, it's not going to be valuable to the people that, that started the movement. And so that's really the key question, how to turn them into action that will, will change Which things. The, the first thing of that is identifying, identifying the action, number one. Yes. And then figuring out the yeah, identifying, you know, what, what do you hope, what do you hope will happen at the end of this? Right. And so, uh, you know, protests may be a great way to get what you want to happen. It may also be a terrible way to get what you want to happen. Right. Um, a better way to happen, maybe to say, look, you know, we're not going to support cities that do this. We're not going to, you know, support states that do this. We're not going to support businesses that do this, you know, use economic pressure, other sorts of things, but really figuring out, you know, what are the levers that will allow change to occur? What are the barriers that are preventing change from occurring? Only then can you figure out how to mitigate. Talk to me. Talk to me about burning the ships. I know that's part. Well, let's start with endowment. So, just breaking down the barrier of endowment, and then it was in particular burn the ships that caught my attention. I think endowment is the idea that we tend to be attached to the past. So, anytime we're talking about change, there are two important pieces to think about, right? Unlike just getting people to buy something new, change involves getting them to switch from one thing to something else. And there are really two pieces there. One is that attachment to the old thing, and that's endowment. And the other is the uncertainty of the new thing, uh, or this being scared, the anxiety around the new thing. And that's what the uncertainty chapter is is all about. Um, and so the idea of endowment is, you know, we tend to be attached to things we're already doing. Uh, we overvalue things, products, services, and ideas we're using. We undervalue things uh, that that we're not doing. Um, uh, and so the challenge is, well, how do you make people realize that what they're doing may be problematic? So I'll give you just a, a, a short a, a example of this. You know, uh, in general, if you ask people, which do you think causes you more pain, a minor injury or a major injury? 
everyone will say, well, of course, a major injury, right? Um, uh, you know, if I uh, break my leg uh, or I need open heart surgery or, you know, I shatter my kneecap, that's much worse than, you know, spraining my ankle or, you know, um, having back spasms once in a while or, you know, having some, you know, small issue with my shoulder that only flares up once in a while. Major injuries are much more painful than minor injuries. Um, and while everyone says that, that intuition is actually incorrect. Because the problem with minor major, the problem with the good thing about major injuries, but the problem with minor injuries is you do work to fix major injuries. So if you break your leg, you go get a cast put on your leg. If you shatter a kneecap, you go get it fixed. But if you once in a while have a sprained finger or have a nagging back pain that only comes around once a month, you tend not to do anything about it because it's below the threshold of being worth changing. But the problem is because you never end up getting it fixed, it ends up causing you more pain overall over time. And that I think is a really good analogy, a really good way to think about change, right? What people are doing now is probably pretty good because if it was terrible, they already would have switched. But because it's pretty good, it makes, it prevents them in some sense from moving on to something better. Because it's good enough, they never want to do something better because, oh yeah, it's not perfect, but it's good enough. Right? A way to think about it is, you know, if your house is infested with cockroaches, you call an exterminator. If you have a fly once in a while, you don't do anything about it, right? It's not, it's not above the threshold to take action. And so then one thing we need to do is change agents. If we're trying to get people to change is make people realize that good may not be good enough. So um, I had a cousin uh, who I was talking to about email, um, and uh, every time he'd write an email, at the bottom of the email, he'd write uh, his name. So I don't remember, Best Charles or Regards Charles, whatever it is at the bottom uh, of every email that he'd write. And I said, you know, hey, you could automate that, you know, right? You could just come up with an email signature that would put that in every email you'd write. And he said, yeah, but, you know, it only takes me a couple seconds, and it would take me a few minutes to figure out how to do it, and it's just not worth the time. Right? I'm just going to keep doing it because it's just not worth the time. And so I tried to sort of encourage him to change. He would never change. And then finally I sort of took a different approach. I said, hey, uh, how many emails do you write every day? He's like, I don't know, maybe uh, 50, maybe uh, you know, 75. How many emails do you write every week? He's like, I don't know, maybe 400, 500. I said, okay. And, and how many seconds does it take you per email to write your signature? He thought about it for a minute. He said, did some math. And then he went online and typed into Google, you know, how do you uh, write an email signature? Because what he realized is, yes, each time he did it only took a couple of seconds, but in aggregate, it was actually really costly, right? And so that's an example of what I call surfacing the cost of an action. It may seem really cheap or really easy to keep doing something that's not great, but that cost over time can actually be really high. And so what good change agents do is they make people realize, hey, look, each one time that you do this might not be a big deal, but in total, it's a really big deal, right? Making people realize that it's not as small or as minor as they might think. Just flipping over to uncertainty, because I really want to get to get to that one in particular, because it, I feel like it's huge right now. You know, we the friction we have in a lot of organizations, a lot of CEOs and leaders are facing is that now is a time for huge action. You know, the ones that come out ahead of this pandemic period are going to be the ones that take the boldest moves right now. But the problem is we're, we as societies and we as organizations and we as a workforce are more uncertain probably than we have ever been. And so the need for change is huge, but the barrier, that particular barrier to change, I think is just massive at the moment. So how do we lift that handbrake, the handbrake of uncertainty? Yeah, what, what's so interesting about uh, change is that it's not just that new things cost money. It's not just that new things require time and effort, but that new things are uncertain, 
right? Sure, a company says that a product or service might be better than the product or service you're using already. Sure, a colleague might say a new initiative will really help the company. Sure, you know, a friend might say a vacation destination is better than where you've gone. Uh, but you don't know for sure. And if you don't know for sure, it has that risk associated with it. And it's easier to just keep doing the same thing, right? The status quo bias, we stick with what we've been doing uh, before. And so what great change agents do, what really good catalysts do is they figure out a way to lower the barrier to trial. They figure out a way rather than telling people something is great to allow people to figure it out themselves. And so this happens all the time on, on the internet, for example. You know, you think about uh, businesses that use a freemium business model where they give away a certain version of their product for free, and then they try to encourage you to upgrade or pay more money for a, a premium version, right? Um, you get the free version, but if you like it, you'll pay for the premium version. And notice what that does, right? Rather than the company saying, hey, our product or service is great, it allows people to experience the value themselves which makes them much more likely to be willing to pay for it, right? You don't have to trust us. Experience it yourself. If it doesn't work, you don't have to use it. Well, people try it themselves. They learn it's good. They're going to be willing to pay the money. But, but the principle is much broader than freemium because if you think about test drives in cars, for example, right, there's no free version and a premium version. All it is is a test drive. But if you came to a car dealership and they said, oh, you want to check out the car? Well, pay us $30,000 and only then can you check out the car. No one would ever buy a new car because that upfront barrier is too high. And so what test drives do is they don't make a free version of the premium. They make it easier to try the value and experience the value of that thing. Free samples at the grocery store do the same sort of thing. Money-back guarantees make people more comfortable doing things because they feel if they don't work out, they can give them back. And so I think the key question for whether it's CEOs or business people in general at these moments is, okay, yes, there's a lot of uncertainty in the, in the world. You yourself can't resolve that uncertainty, but how can you allow people to experience the value of what you're offering and allow them to resolve the uncertainty by themselves, right? Not giving away everything you're doing for free because eventually you have to make money, um, but saying, well, what is a way we can give away something of what we're doing for free, an experience, an offering, something to allow them to experience the value themselves? And does that also apply when you're, I mean, that's for client facing, but if you're trying to drive change internally, trying to get people to adopt a change internally, how does that model apply internally with an organization? Oh, the same thing, right? So um, take uh, take Zappos, for example. Um, so Zappos is a big uh, shoe company in the United States. I don't know if, if you guys have Zappos as well. We don't, but it's, but it's, online it's pretty legendary. Ah. Yeah, okay. Big, big online retailer, great customer service. When they started out, they wanted to figure out whether it was a good idea to be in the online shoe business. And so what would you need to do? You need to buy a bunch of inventory. You need to buy a factory to store that inventory. You'd need to set up a shipping system. Um, and then when people ordered, you'd send them shoes. But notice there's a big upfront cost there that's very risky before you even see whether people made orders. So they did something interesting and said, instead, they didn't buy any shoes. They didn't have any inventory. All they did was they set up a website where people could buy shoes. And if people bought those shoes, then Zappos went out, figured where those shoes were, bought them from some other company, and sent them to people directly. Now, did that cost Zappos some money? Yes. Each pair of shoes they were selling, they lost money when they sold it. Each one, they lost money. But is the amount of money they lost larger or smaller than it would have cost to buy all that inventory to start with, to set up all the procurement centers and all those other things? It was much lower, right? And what it was is a way for them to test or try 
whether their business was actually effective. And so I think anyone can use the same idea, right? Say you're within an organization, you think we should take a new course of action, it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's risky. What's a trial version or a baby version or a way you can allow people to experience it so that they can see themselves whether it's any good, right? Not do the whole big thing up front, but figure out a trial version so that they can see it and they're much more likely to come along. This is another question just before we come to an end that is just curiosity more than anything else. All of these tools can obviously be used to change other people's minds, but I'm assuming they can also be choose, used to change our own minds because that's one of the biggest jobs, right? Changing, changing our own mind. When was, when was the last time you changed your, you ch- managed to change your own mind on something? <laughs> Uh, I, I often change my own mind uh, on things, whether on purpose or not. Um, I think the tools uh, in this book are, are for the most part externally facing. Many of the stories are externally facing. It's not sort of set up as a self-help book, but the same principles apply, right? I mean, the same ideas of, um, uh, of you know, distance, of shrinking the distance, for example, the same ideas of reducing endowment, the same ideas of easing uncertainty, the same ideas of providing corroborating evidence, all of them can be used to encourage ourselves to live happier and and healthier lives. And so the principles are very much the same. How we apply them may be a little bit different, uh, but the principles are very similar. And for anyone out there who's who wants to head off tomorrow or today and start to become more of a catalyst, either in their own lives or in their organizations, when they when they start that, if, what's the one thing? What's the if they do nothing else? What's the one thing they should take with them? I think the one thing is to start identifying those barriers. Right to stop to stop thinking about change as what I want to have happen, and start asking why it hasn't happened already. Right, you talk to people who have been unable to change things, and they'll say, "Oh, it didn't work, it didn't happen," and you ask them why, and they say things like, "People didn't like it." People didn't like it isn't the truth, right? Underneath that truth is a bigger or broader reason. Why don't people like it? What are people scared of? What are they attached to? What are they unwilling to let go of? Start by asking, why hasn't that change happened already? It'll help you identify the barriers and it'll help you change anything. Well, I know that you, you're you on a massive schedule right now. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your research. Thank you for the, the quality of your thinking. It's been a pleasure to dive into today. Well, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope everyone enjoys the book. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. 
And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.